This presentation is from UX Australia 2022, day one. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's presentation. My name is Ted Drake, and I'm super excited to be joining this conference in Australia. I just wish I was there. I've been to Australia before, and I will have a few of my photos in this presentation, but I miss the animals. I live in California, but to be honest, uh, Australia to me is a lot like California, but you have much better animals especially those big blackbirds that sit up in the trees and they scream at you. I always felt like uh, someone was watching me. Um, but when I saw this conference was available, I thought, oh, I really would like to uh, attend and learn from all of the designers uh, this week. And I'm really happy to uh, have some members of Intuit joining as well. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about inclusive design especially when that design is uh, relating to uh, our customers that have cognitive disabilities, uh, neurodiversity, and chronic illness. A few topics that aren't discussed very often. Um, before I start, <clears throat> uh, I want to continue the wonderful tra uh, tradition from Australia of land acknowledgements. Um, I am currently in the Palm Springs area of California which is outside of Los Angeles. It's a desert area. So I want to respectfully acknowledge the Cahuela Nation who have stewarded this land in Palm Springs throughout the generations. We ask you to join us in acknowledging the Cahuela Nation community, their ancestors and elders, both past and present, as well as their future generations. We also acknowledge that our presence on this land is the result of the occupation of indigenous land. This acknowledgement is part of our commitment to work towards honoring the ongoing legacies of the Kuala Nation and Indigenous peoples around the world. Today's presentation, it's going to be <clears throat> pretty long. I hope that I'll be able to finish it in time, and if so, I'll be able to take some questions. We're going to, uh, first, I'm going to talk about some neurodiversity leaders. We're going to talk about some UX and user design principles cognitive load, short-term memory, content design, readability, and I'm gonna talk about uh, some lessons we learned while we were just uh, researching sickle cell disease, uh, the pain and the anxiety. So uh, let's kick it off. My name is Ted Drake. I am Intuit's Accessibility and Inclusive Design Leader. I've been doing uh, accessibility for over 20 years. It started uh, because I was a fine art major and with that major, I was qualified to work at an art store. So I uh, started to learn how to make websites. This was back around 1999. And I joined the San Diego Museum of Art and quickly became their website manager, which is where I first learned about accessibility. And the fact that in America, in, it was a uh, well, it was uh, 30, 35 years ago, we had the Americans with Disabilities Act, which basically meant that as a museum, when we provided exhibitions or we provided entertainment or lectures, we had to provide them in a way that uh, supported all of our customers. And this included a website. So that's why I first heard about Section 508, which was a requirement in, in the United States for government websites to be accessible and uh, websites by agencies that are funded by the government. At the time, nobody really knew what we were doing. We were just happy to be able to get content onto a website. But uh, we did talk about it. We did think about semantic markup, images with alt text, um, links. 
But this was a time when you were building a website for Internet Explorer 5, um, Netscape Navigator 3.7, you know, so this was the old days. Um, it was a mess. Um, it was truly a mess. Uh, and we were doing some really bad things when it came to accessibility. But we kind of had this point where we said, this has got to stop. So that's when we came across uh, standards-based web development uh, led by Jeffrey Zeldman, a designer, which basically said, if we build stuff correctly to the standards, then we can tell browsers, hey, you need to support standards. And what happened was the browsers got together, the developers got together, the W3C got together. We started building websites as they were meant to be built. Uh, it was about that time when uh, I was invited to join Yahoo. And so I was a Yahoo web developer and I co-founded Yahoo's accessibility team, started as a volunteer group, and it eventually became the Yahoo Accessibility Lab. After Yahoo, I joined into it. I've been at Intuit for 10 years. We build uh, financial software for people to control their uh, taxes, their finances, and uh, build small businesses and be professional accountants. Um, over the last 10 years at Intuit, I also co-founded our Intuit Accessibility, our Intuit Abilities Network, our Intuit Silver Network, and the Intuit Indigenous Peoples Network. Uh, like I said, I have a BFA in fine art, painting, printmaking, and photography, but photography is my specialty. So that's a little bit about me. Uh, I came to Australia about four years ago uh, when the uh, Perth hosted the World Wide Web, uh, the Web Conference, which is uh, also co-located with the Web for All, which is a conference for researchers around the world to sh share their latest research on accessibility and assistive technology. So that's a lot about me, but probably the most important thing about me with this presentation is that I do not have lived experiences. So this talk is about cognitive disabilities, neurodiversity and chronic illnesses. And I can't give you those personal experiences. Uh, what I can give you is what I've learned by working with people, uh, by studying and customer research. Uh, but what I would like for you to do is after this conference, follow some of these people. Um, Ashley McKay, she's an autistic UX researcher. She gave a presentation last year at UX Australia, and she's the chief people officer for Parberry. You just uh, finished watching a presentation on uh, designing for sensitive areas. So I would suggest that you follow this uh, presentation by Tori Clark and Kelly Sierra Bradley. They did a really fantastic presentation called My Trigger, My Choice. It was at AxCon 2022, um, hosted by DeQ. It's available on uh, online. You can watch it on YouTube. Uh, really nice way they talked about how we need to provide trigger warnings, not just trigger warnings for content, but also trigger warnings for is this content that I'm going to try to watch going to support me or not? Is it going to trigger any kind of emotional or physical reactions that I should know about in advance? This is something that became especially important during COVID when we were trying to join you know, remote applications, we were trying to join 
virtual worlds. And we really didn't know if, uh, if what's going to work with a keyboard, what's going to work with a mouse. Was it going to depend on voice or sound or visuals? So that's a really nice presentation by them. Laurel Byers is with, uh, I think she's with uh, VMware. Um, she has uh, some really, really good presentations. She's with Citrix uh, about um, dyslexia. She's, uh, I highly recommend checking out everything that she has done. Lona Moore is a principal design program manager at Exxon. Uh, she's also on the spectrum and she uh, has been giving a lot of information about design. I'm going to be sharing some information throughout the session that was created by Gareth Ford Williams, um, truly a leader in the inclusive design space. He led accessibility and inclusive design at the BBC. He's done enormous research in uh, dyslexia and uh, typography. He has a new program called Abley, AB11Y. He uh, writes a lot on Medium and uh, fantastic person. He has ADHD and dyslexia, and uh, he's also been working with us on our research in long COVID. <clears throat> Renee Brooks has a podcast. She has ADHD. She has a podcast called blackgirllostkeys.com, and she has also been contributing to Kaleidoscope, which is a uh, uh, online community for women with ADHD. Jamie Knight and Lyon. Um, Jamie Knight also works at the BBC, has worked. He just le recently left. Uh, he worked closely with Gareth. He has, uh, I don't think they're recording this anymore, but 1800 Seconds on Autism is a podcast about uh, adults with autism discussing uh, their life. Um, he has two websites, Jamie plus Lyon and Spaced Out and Smiling. Jamie has done some of the best presentations I've ever seen and has given brutal insights into his life with uh, autism. So highly recommend everything that Jamie Knight has done. But the key thing about um, inclusive design for neurodiversity, cognitive disabilities, chronic illness, anxiety, is there's no single experience or solution. I can't tell you that if you wanted to design for someone with dyslexia, here's how to do it. I can't tell you, here's how you can design for someone with autism. It's because there is no single experience. They're not a single person. So what you need to do is think about our basic UX principles for cognitive accessibility, and you need to do your own customer research and make sure that you're getting a broader view. So let's look at uh, those UX principles. Now, I already talked about Gareth Ford Williams and the fact that he has ADHD. Um, so he took the heuristics from Nielsen Norman group. Uh, I would assume that most people in the room know Nielsen Norman. Uh, those documents are not necessarily the easiest to read, um, but what Gareth has done is he's taken them and transformed them into his own UX principles for cognitive accessibility. So use standard elements, check your affordances and signifiers, simplify interfaces, communicate clearly, build in redundant interaction methods, use consistent patterns, design for recognition rather than recall, vary stimuli to capture the attention, deliver effective feedback and notification, and finally, give users control and choice. Uh, so I've just laid down a bunch of UX principles. 
Uh, we were now throughout the rest of the presentation kind of cover. You'll see most of these are going to be discussed in one way or another. Let's start with affordances and signifiers, my favorite. I have two pictures of doors, one taken from the inside and one taken from the outside. Now, the doors on the outside uh, have a handle that is like a backward C and a forward C. And the top of those letters you can grab a hold of. In fact, at the top of them, you can see that the brass has been rubbed so it's so shiny from everybody grabbing it. This is a door that you would pull on to open it. It has a signifier that says, pull this. And it has an affordance of this is a door that opens out. From the inside of the building, the uh, doors are open with these two bars. The bars are horizontal and they can be collapsed. So coming from the inside, you want to take and you want to push on those bars, which opens the door and the doors swing open. If you open, if you walked up to these doors from the outside, you pulled them, everything would work fine. No problem. You just go on inside and you wouldn't think twice about it. If you're coming from the inside, you would go to the door, you would push it, it would open, everything would be fine. You wouldn't think twice about it. But what happens when you go up to that door and you pull on that door and it doesn't open? Well, the first thing you think of is the door is locked. But maybe you know the door should be open, so you pull again and you pull again and you pull again, and then maybe you walk away. But the last thing you're going to think about is, oh, I need to push this door. So that's what happens when we have an affordance, the door opening in or out, and the signifier, do I pull or do I push? When you have an affordance and a signifier that don't match, you're going to cross, you're going to cost the user to think. Um, and that's going to cause a cognitive load. So what is a cognitive load? Cognitive load is the amount of working memory or short-term memory someone is using. So for the most part, most of us have unlimited cognitive load. I'm working, I can complete a task, I can start another task, I can get up and grab a cup of water, um, maybe someone talks to me, so I'm distracted, maybe my phone rings. I have a cognitive load that keeps uh, refilling itself. And if I get really tired, I can take a break, go for a walk, come back, and my cognitive load is back. Not everybody has an infinite cognitive load. A lot of people have a cognitive load that once they get going, if they stop, or if they get distracted, or if they get frustrated, they're not able to just continue going. It actually is mentally and physically taxing. So what we want to do is we want to minimize the cognitive load. By minimizing the cognitive load uh, that it takes to use your product or service, it makes it more accessible for people with cognitive disabilities. It also makes for a better product. It makes for fewer people putting stuff in your, your shopping cart and then leaving. It makes it for fewer people that are trying to find your menu, but your menu is loading in a very strange way. Like all of a sudden I have to swipe left and right. And I'm like, why can't I just go down to, you know, um, the pasties or something like that? I want to look at a menu. I don't want to think about how is this menu working? So cognitive load, make it as easy as possible for people. That's going to help our customers have short-term memory. It's also going to help our customers with uh 
cognitive uh, disabilities. There's a, uh, a really excellent um, document from Microsoft. It's a PDF and it's about focus. So it says when technology communicates and behaves well, it enables you to do what you want to on your terms. It communicates in ways that allow you to focus and achieve the level of concentration you need to accomplish the task. Now, this PDF is not talking about when I press the keyboard and the focus style moves from button to button to button. Usually when we're talking about design, a lot of times, especially in accessibility, we talk about keyboard focus. No, this is focus like I need to create an invoice. I need to check my bank account. I need to pay rent. Um, let me work on that. Don't all of a sudden start popping up advertisements and surveys. Uh, don't have a uh, a video of um, you know uh, uh, a monkey or something like that or a kangaroo dancing around in the background. Just let me focus on what I'm trying to do. So how can we reduce cognitive load? Use simple instead of complex. Think about what content actually serves a purpose and leave out the rest. An excellent, excellent example of this is the work that was done by Luke Roblowski, who created the original uh, mobile first design philosophy. So what he was basically saying is that you have a bank website and it's huge. It's got all of this functionality. It's got all these charts and all these graphs and everything. When I look at it on a phone, I don't need to see all that stuff. When I look at it on a phone, I just want to know what is my balance? Uh, do I have any credit cards due? I just want to know very simple information on my phone. So that's what he's saying is basically you've got this big website. Now let's simplify it and give the critical information to those that are using a smaller device. It's the same thing that we're looking at here with cognitive load. Do I really need all of that information or can I start peeling it back and maybe put some of that complex information on a secondary screen? Make it easy to understand. At Intuit, our readability target is fifth to eighth grade, uh, and that's pretty common across most of the industry. Use videos and illustrations to support content. Have clear affordances and signifiers. Use headings and lists to make uh, content scannable, consistent layout, and label your icons with visible text. And now on the screen, I have a picture of uh, six icons. The first one is an icon that looks like a person, and it has the text, my experts. Then there's an icon of a question mark in a circle. It has the text, help. Then there's an icon for a magnifying glass, a bell, a gear, and then a blue circle with the letter C. Now, the first two are really easy to understand because it's an icon connected with text. So those are hard to mistake. The search uh, icon, the magnifying glass, the bell, and the, and the gear are pretty well recognized as search notifications and settings. But what does that blue circle with the letter C mean? You know, for the first time you come across that letter C, you're going to look at it going, I don't know what that means. So I have to put my mouse over it. When I put my mouse over it, is there going to be a tooltip that pops up? Maybe not. If I'm using a keyboard, I'm just going to have to focus on it and press it. When you have a icon that's not immediately acknowledged, give them a text label. And in that particular case, that blue circle with the letter C stands for my account. So that's where I would press in order to log out of a product. 
Um, maybe this will become more standardized in the future, but that's an area where it's going to require some cognitive load to figure out what that icon represents. In the excellent book, Don't Make Me Think, Steve Krug said, as a rule, people don't like to puzzle over things. They enjoy puzzles in their place when they want to be entertained or diverted or challenged, but not when they're trying to find out what time their dry cleaner closes. So think about why am I making someone stop and think? And if there's not a good reason for making them stop and think, then don't make them stop and think. Um, I'm going to... Now, I'm going to show a video. This is from the Nielsen Norman group. Um, it's an excellent video about short-term memory, and I think it also helps understand how we're going with some of the other inclusive design strategies for uh, in, uh, cognitive disabilities. Our short-term memory is limited, and yet that is what we are most often using when we try to keep track of information on any particular web page or application page. There is often so much information in the websites that we use that we have trouble remembering what we have just seen or what we just scrolled through. It is for these reasons that we as designers should be judicious with how much information we put on screen and ensure that whatever we place on our screens is needed and relevant to the task at hand. In addition, our design should support helping users remember critical information by carrying that data over from screen to screen and having it available when necessary so we don't take up too much of our user's short-term memory. So let's review how short-term memory works. Now, short-term memory famously holds about seven chunks of information. And these chunks fade from our brain after about 20 to 30 seconds. Since our short-term memory is so limited in both capacity and duration, we should try to create interfaces that focus on recognition rather than recall. Our brains are good at recognizing something we have seen before, but not as good at keeping new information in a ready state for usage, which is sometimes referred to as working memory. So how can we aid the user since memory is so short? So here are a few examples. As users navigate through a site, they may not remember all the links or navigation that they clicked on as they go back and forth. As they see more information on the screen, many will forget what they previously clicked on. So our solution should be to highlight navigation links that they clicked on, highlight navigation placement in the architecture, provide breadcrumbs. These design solutions help our users remember. Second, let's say a user wants to compare items on a website to make a choice. What's our solution? Well, we should provide a comparison table with all of the relevant data, all on the same screen, with easy-to-see apples-to-apples comparisons and highlight salient differences between the choices so that users don't have to remember the data. They can just see it all in one place. So one more example. Perhaps you have a site where users need to remember specific data, file names, codes, these types of things. What would our solution be? Well, our solution would be to have the system carry that information over for them so they don't have to remember themselves. The computer has an unlimited and hopefully perfect memory, so we should place the burden on the computer to help the user as an extension of their own memory. So let's try to capitalize on what we know about our memory and perception systems by providing clear information, 
carrying over information for our users, and prioritizing recognition over recall. Our short-term memory is limited. And I always love when you're showing a video and it never stops. Uh, good times. Uh, so let's go back to designing for short-term memory. Focusing on recognition instead of recall. One of the key things about this is that in uh, upcoming years, we're going to be seeing a whole new version of the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, version 3.0. Currently, we're on version 2.1. Um, frankly, these were supposed to have been released by now, but I think you're going to see them in about three years. This is going to have a new requirement so that if someone fills in information on step one of a form, you have to remember that information and you have to display it uh, in future uh, sections of the form. So in other words, if someone gives you their first name and last name, don't ask for it a second time. If someone gives you their phone number, their social security, their address, only ask for it once. When you go to another part of the form or another section of the page, you should have uh, saved that information as long as it's part of your uh, your uh, uh, your security and uh, security. Why am I drawing a blank on that? See, short-term memory loss. Uh, you, you should be able to do that as long as it's in your requirements. But the key thing is that we don't want to keep asking people to fill in things multiple times. So that's part of focus on recognition instead of recall. Provide tools that aid in decision making. Have the system do some of the work for the user. Add into it, we have a tax product. And it's got an enormous amount of screens that a person can go through because the tax laws are very difficult. But what it does is instead of a customer going through you know, 250 tax screens, we ask you questions like, uh, were you married last year? Did you have children last year? Did you get a new job? Did you donate money? Did you buy a car? And by asking these very simple questions, we're essentially moving those 250 screens down to about 25. And so we're doing the hard work for them so that it's easy to answer those questions and do your taxes. Um, <clears throat> provide help in, oh, uh, response time must be fast. Change the color of visited links so people know if they're going through a page with 15 to 20 links, which ones they've already looked at. And provide help in context instead of an external resource. This was something I was working on a product team uh, just recently trying to fix some older pages. And I'm showing an example on the screen. It's a form input. The form label input label is crocodile name. The value of the input is Dundee. And it has an error message directly underneath it saying Dundee has been taken. The key is that the error message is in context with the input. It's not hidden in a tooltip. It's not hidden at the top of the page where it says the following errors have uh, inputs have errors. Um, no, instead, it's in context. So the user knows exactly which form inputs are uh, invalid. Let's look at some content design strategies. Uh, this was a picture I took in Australia, and it's a sticker I saw on a door that said, from now on, things will return to being confusing uh, by Seesaw. Use direct and simple language. Avoid euphemisms. Avoid language that is culturally dependent. And use a fifth to sixth grade reading level. 
Uh, we have a summary in our content design, into its content design uh, website under the abolish racist language section, but it says, can a word be substituted for something clearer or more literal? The answer is often yes. Think about what the term actually means and describe that. Um, I come from California, but my family is from the South. My, uh, my mom is from Alabama. My dad is from Tennessee. My husband grew up in the Appalachians. And so the South is known for euphemisms and words that don't make sense out of the South. So I have a little video I'm going to show you. Um, this is anybody from the South knows this term. And of course, when I say the South, I mean like Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Tennessee. Let's find out what bless your heart means. Bless his heart. Once we get married, he won't be watching as much football. Bless her heart. That actually means poor naive child. Oh, oh, hey, hey, guys. Here you Next one. Next time. Next time. Bless his heart. That actually means I hate that guy. Bless her heart. That actually means kids these days. Oh, oh come on. Bless his heart. That actually means take that loser. And now it shows the two women looking at Snapchat. <laughs> Some younger people Bless are looking at them. Bless their heart means that's so cute. To, so to summarize, when someone in the South says bless your heart, they're usually not meaning bless your heart. They're usually meaning one of many different things, not always uh, the nicest. So um, that's an example of like, when you put bless your heart into a page, what are you actually meaning? Um, actually, you would probably say it instead of printing it. Um, another thing that we've got going on at Intuit is we're looking at multimodal learning experiences. This is actually being driven by some of the members of our neurodiversity employee network. What I mean by multimodal learning experiences is not everybody is a visual learner. Some people are uh, audio learners. Some people are text. Some people need to scan. Some people need illustrations and images next to them. So in this screen, I've got a picture of uh, some text uh, from the Cat Ipsum website. And then next to it is a picture that I took in uh, Australia. And it's got these two little cloisonne uh, pins of cats flipping you off. Um, so the image is representing the text of the cat. So if I can't read the text, I can at least see that these are some mischievous kitty cats. Um, you may find your content is easier to understand when you include images and illustrations rather than all text or the opposite, adding a text description with your images. Also with typography, use left alignment. Respect users' preferences for color and size. Uh, dyslexic fonts are not always a solution. Uh, dyslexic fonts, meaning there are some custom fonts where the text is not of a consistent size and shape so that theoretically you'd be able to understand uh, the letter B from the letter P or from the letter D. There was some excellent research done by Gareth Ford Williams from the BBC and the Readability Group. Um, and they did show that the best fonts were SF Pro, uh, Begoy, 
UI, BBC's Wreath Sands, Verdana, Red Hat Text, and Atkinson's Hyperlegible. Um, two of the dyslexic fonts were actually worst performers. Also, avoid large blocks of centered text, avoid justified alignment, and avoid hard black and white contrast if you can. You might notice in my slides, I'm using an off-white background with a off-black text. For some people, the really strong black and white can be hard to read. So now I want to shift into something that's not talked about very often, and that is inclusive design for pain and anxiety. Uh, I did some research with a colleague, Pam Bingham, and we wanted to find out how we could understand better the um, inclusive design uh, strategies for people that have sickle cell disease. Sickle cell disease is a blood, it's a genetic disease, most often seen in the African-American community, um, but not just in America. It's basically a certain, it comes from uh, the malaria belt. Uh, it's a genetic, uh, actually an adaptation, they think, for helping people survive malaria, but it causes other problems. And those other problems are where the blood cells will get sticky and they will fold over. They block the uh, arteries and the veins and the capillaries, causing parts of your body to actually become oxygen deprived, which is an extremely painful situation. It also causes strokes, um, organ failures, uh, anemia, and such. So all of these different disabilities piled in together, and then you layer on it a hefty dose of racism um, and people assuming that when a person comes into the hospital room, they're just looking for drugs and because the pain crisis is not visible. It's not like somebody just had an arm chopped off. No, you're looking at someone and there's no visible symptoms for why they are in extreme pain. So a lot of times these people are ignored. So we met with a guy, his name is Hertz Nazar. He's an artist from Haiti. And this was a video he created for a project to put his artwork, these chairs, into waiting rooms. Hello, my name is Hertz Nazer. I'm a painter, artist, and designer. I was born with sickle cell anemia, which later affected my vision. I continue to use my art to advocate for my community. And these are the waiting chairs. Imagine you walk into your local hospital for care and you are asked to take a seat. After taking a seat, you wait a few hours and then another hour and the hours fly by and you start to feel invisible. Urgent care is an issue that our community faces and it is a deadly issue because sickle cell is very dangerous and the pain is extreme but sitting here in pain no one sees you it is like you do not matter and our community faces this every day in many hospitals i wish to share my art with these waiting rooms and hope to changing the mindset to inspire people to care. Thank you for your consideration. That video was actually recorded uh, like a day after he got out of the hospital after an extremely bad crisis. 
Um, Hertz said, pain is a suffering, suffering is a torture. Pain memory sticks with you long after the crisis. It causes post-traumatic stress and anxiety. So we worked with Hertz and we looked at a standard um, patient entry form for a clinic. We thought if we could look at a standard entry form for a clinic, we could understand how we can better improve the user experience for one of the worst times um, and experiences of their lives. So we gave them this form and we thought, well, how can we uh, work with you to uh, improve it? So we, uh, this is uh, Hertz talking about how he's in so much pain when he's in the hospital, he's not actually gonna look at that form. Most of the time, you know, I can't read them. I'm in too much pain and, and because I'm in crisis, um, my eyes may be watering because I'm crying. You know, I'm not gonna see that form anyway. So it's, it's, I wouldn't use my blindness as an excuse at all for the form. It's just that most of the time, a, a regular vision, a, a regular warrior with, 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 with 2020 vision is not gonna be able to read your form because they're, grunt, they're grunting, they're squinting, they're, they're crying. They've had a rough eight hours. Normally we wait eight or so hours just to know that this is actually a crisis that's not gonna go away. Because sometimes you have a crisis, it comes on, you take two Tylenol, extra strength, you wait four hours, it goes away, you start feeling better and you don't have to go in. You wait eight hours, it doesn't go away. Now you have to face the music, now you have to go in. So a normal sickle cell warrior, they probably waited eight or more hours before they got their pain taken care of. So they've already been through hell and back. So the form is the last thing they can probably focus on. So there's gonna be a lot of difficulties for forms in the first place for us. So normally there's an advocate there, a parent or somebody else who is going to fill, help you fill out those forms. Or if you're alone, that form is not going to get filled. It's gonna get, get, get filled by the nurse who's asking the questions and they're filling out the form for you and they ask you to sign it. You know, that's usually how it works. So we asked Hertz, what would we do to fix this? Um, the first thing he said is get rid of all that extraneous information, treat the crisis first, get me help, get me pain relief, do what needs to be done to take me out of this crisis. Don't ask me questions that are not necessary for the crisis itself. So that's the first thing he said is this original form had a bunch of unnecessary information and it had terms that were not um, readable. They had complex terms that the uh, hospital knew about, but not the patient. So with his work, we came up with an updated form. In this updated form, uh, the key things we did was we focused on the core purpose to facilitate immediate treatment we looked at what was the critical information. One of the things he said was the first one didn't even ask who his primary doctor is. And the primary doctor is the person other than the patient that knows the most about them. What is the pain level? What kind of treatment is effective? What medications do you currently take? Do they have any allergies? What kind of complications do you have? A uh, sickle cell person that has had multiple strokes is gonna be different than a sickle cell uh, patient 
that has not had strokes, but is having problems with their spleen or anemia. We also looked at the fact that a patient knows their body, they know their pain, they know what works for them. So give them the opportunity to quickly fill out the forms so that uh, they can tell you what medication they're on, how it affects them. They wanna be respected for their self-advocacy. They wanna be believed for their pain levels and the seriousness of their crisis. It would be much easier for the clinic to help this person if they knew immediately that uh, morphine works uh, when I first come into the clinic, please give me morphine within 30 minutes. After that morphine, I can switch over to a different pain reliever that usually works. And uh, within an hour, I should be at a much better um, situation. That would be something that a, a sickle cell warrior could tell you that wouldn't come from that earlier form. The other thing he talked about is that he may not be the one filling out this form. So make it easier for someone else to fill it out. Give check boxes. So Hertz can say, someone could say, do you take morphine? Is it uh, an allergy? Is it effective? He could say it's effective. Um, here's my normal dose or here's where uh, you need to think about it. So make it really easy to fill stuff out. Uh, use readable language. So think about the fact this might be read by a fifth or sixth grader. So use uh, uh, language that's understandable. In summary, focus on your customer's purpose. Optimize for their experience and not yours. I've got a picture right now of it says primary phone and there are three inputs. This should never be shown to a customer. Uh, you may have a database that needs to keep the phone number into three fields, but that's a terrible experience for customers. Just give them a single form input and you should be doing the work on the back end to understand what that phone number is. So that's an example of focus on their experience, not yours. Trust your customer's expertise. Your customer may not be the person interacting with your design. Uh, with our TurboTax, we see this a lot. We may see that a person has a, a parent or an uncle or a, a partner, a roommate, a neighbor, that's actually helping the uh, taxpayer fill out their forms. Don't ask for non-essential information. Like in the original one, it wanted to know their uh, gender, it wanted to know their age. Um, follow design standards for vision, cognitive, and mobility. So with the sickle cell disease patients, uh, having good contrast, having uh, reducing cognitive load, making sure that things could be used with a, a keyboard, all of these things help. And remember, when you meet one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. And this goes along with everything else, everybody else that is neurodivergent. People are not uh, a single block. Everybody is different. So include neurodivergent people in your customer research. Uh, thank you so much for letting me talk to you today. And I hope you have a fantastic day.